This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha Shalach, here at the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg, where today we are going to be talking about spies and strings, among other things. So what do I mean? Obviously, I'm referring to the contents of this week's Parsha. So we'll get to all of it. Um, but first, let's thank our sponsors, Anonymous, and a sponsorship from Yonan Khani Laster, their second sponsorship. Thank you guys so much. Anyone else who wants to sponsor, just reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Now, when it comes to Parsha Shlach, there are many topics in the Parsha that we have to get to. It's not just the Chet HaMaraglim, although that's the most well-known and the most infamous of topics in our Parsha. And it does take up a few aliyos, but again, there are so many mitzvah topics that are in this Parsha. And as we try to achieve that panoramic view of the Parsha, it pays for us to ask and to find out what exactly these other topics are and what, in fact, are they doing here. Um, But what I'll say is that we do have a bit of a tree when it comes to um, that panoramic view of the Parsha that we always look for. So we do have a tree in Parsha Shalach where we find... Um, which may be a, a phenomenon that we don't find in so many other parshios, and that is that the closing topic in Parsha Shlach, although seemingly at first glance has not much to do with the beginning of the Parsha, the end of Parsha Shlach subtly and artfully announces itself with some very clear wordplay in the Parsha of Tzitzis. So for example, the you know, the, the Chumash tells us, that you should not spy out after your heart and after your eyes. Right? That Lushan of Losasura was borrowed clearly from the beginning of the Parsha, where the Miraglim were given the okay, the permit, to spy out the land, Losasura Sa'aretz. Right, a separate discussion, which maybe we'll, we'll touch on a little later, is um, was it a permit, was it a command? According to Chazal and according to um, other parts of the Torah, it seems that it was just a permit. From this week's parsha, it looks like it was a command. Um, again, a topic possibly for another time, maybe something that we'll talk about later this week, if not um, here and now. But um, Rashi, right there in he tells us that the heart and the eyes are the miraglim for the body. So that's the lashon he uses, literally borrowed from the the way Chazal depict the scouts or the spies in our parsha. Um, right, they're not called miraglim in our parsha. Something that maybe we will also address later this week. But what's interesting is that. This is one piece of wordplay that we find in the Parsha of Tzitzis. They, again, you're supposed to see them and not spy out after your heart and your eyes. But what we have to address is um, what exactly Tzitzis has to do with the Miraglim. But what is, again, very fascinating is that although in general, you know, it may not always be clear if we didn't have the Masora, where would be the line of demarcation between one Parsha, one Parsha HaShavua and the next, one Sidra and the next. So it's not often easy to figure that out. Or you can, you know, just end a line, you know, end a Parsha at any topic. Here, very clearly, the Chumash indicates that this piece at the end about Sitsis 
is harking back to the Chaytamaraglim, which the Parsha begins with. And what that tells us is that apparently this is the cap on the Parsha that starts off with Shalach, which starts off with the Maraglim. What that also tells us is that everything that's in between the Maraglim and the Parsha of Tzitzis apparently belongs here. It's all part of the sequence. It's all a part of the larger story. But there are so many mitzvah topics here. We have to figure out what each one is actually doing here. Why, in fact, are they here? Now, in terms of how we got here, another Parsha panoramic question that we always ask. So, clearly, Klai Yisrael's downward spiral um, is continuing from that very difficult and painful Parsha of Parsha's Bahaloscha last week, which we spent plenty of time on. So, moving on from there, we've hit our absolute low. And it's not even that things aren't going to get worse later, but the worst of decrees against Klai Yisrael happens in this week's Parsha, after the Chetamaraglim, after the national hysteria, which leads to a, a, a decree of 40 years of wandering in the Midbar, that a whole generation of people, with the exception of only two people, Kali ben Yifuna and Yehoshua ben Nun, um, these two individuals, at least of the adult males, they'll be the only ones to enter Eretz Yisrael. This is pretty harsh and pretty, pretty painful in its own right. So... In terms of what Parsha Shlach is about, so we see how we got here. You know, um, Rashi talks about the juxtaposition between the sins involving um, evil speech. So we have Baha'a finishing with the Lashon Hara of Miriam, and now we have Shlach finishing with the, um, or sorry, beginning with the Lashon Hara of the Miraglim about Eretz Yisrael. What's really, really fascinating, not really a topic for now, but I have to call it out because it was around the time of Yom HaTzma'ut, because um, in Lander, Revelio every single year, around that time of year, always gives some kind of share on Eretz Yisrael. It's, it's usually never, ever political. Um, and I, I, would, I would say it's not just usually, it's just always never political. Um, but it's, it's usually something very inspiring and uplifting and very in, enlightening. And he, he was talking about the concept of Lashon Hara, about Eretz Yisrael, that we find so many uh, manifestations, so many, um, um, so many different demonstrations of the fact that Eretz Yisrael is not just the land, but it's something that we have a relationship with. It's, there's, a, there's a personification of Eretz Yisrael, that there's Lashon Hara that's spoken about Eretz Yisrael, that the land vomits out its inhabitants. We only use these things um, you know, to describe a human, and it, it does represent the Makom HaShchina, something that requires much sensitivity. Um, now, in terms of... So that, that, that all is how we got here and what this Parsha is Parsha about. The Parsha, apparently, what, what we see from beginning to end, and what we have to do is work on the middle, but at least from the beginning and the end, we see that this Parsha, which is a continuation of Am Yisrael's tragedies, and it's the reason why the journey was not completed, right? Because we know that Bahaloscha, the beginning of Bahaloscha, was all about getting ready. Really, the beginning of all Bamidra was all about getting ready to go into Eretz Yisrael, and Shalach is where we hit that wall. And it became evident that we were not going to be going right into the land, even though that was the plan. But anyway, this whole Parsha, we see from the beginning and the end, is really a Parsha that's about the Chet HaMaraglim. And what we have to do is work on the middle to demonstrate how, in fact, it is the, indeed the whole Parsha that is responding to the Chet HaMaraglim. Okay, so let's talk about the contents of the Parsha so we can start answering some of these larger questions. So, number one, 
I just have, and I have six topics in all, but number one is the Chet HaMaraglim. Here, with the story of the Chet HaMaraglim, we get the names of the, of the Maraglim themselves. We have uh, the name of Hoshea, who becomes Yehoshua, apparently, in the story. We have the story of um, the tragedy itself, the report, they come back, we have the national hysteria, they say, that's it, we don't want to go into the land. We have um, the the correspondence between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu praying, a lot of what seems to resemble Moshe Rabbeinu's praying at the time of Vichet Egel. We have the compromised sentence, right, the Meraglim were going to die, but... Um, and, and everyone was going to die before entering the land, um, even if not immediately. It would be over the next, you know, the span of the next 40 years. But, of course, um, the, the next generation would be able to enter the land. Then we have the reception to that sentence, in which we find the story of the Ma'apilim, who were these stubborn individuals who, who said... You know, um, you know, we're not giving up. We're going to go into the land, even if we have to fight our way in there. And of course, they get attacked by Amalek, and they get pounded all the way, all the way to Kharma. because the problem of the Ma'apilim's willpower was that it was misplaced. Because even though maybe their heart was in the right place, but there were what they really should have focused on was the Ratzon Hashem at that moment. And this is really the art of the Eight Sahara. He always tells you to do the opposite of what you're told to do. So when they were told to go into the land, so Klaistral didn't want to go into the land. And yet when they were told, no, okay, don't go into the land, all of a sudden they wanted to go into the land. And this is the story of the Ma'apilim. And so, of course, when they were fighting against Ratzon Hashem, they were fighting, um, you know, an uphill battle. And it was one that they were bound to fail. But all of that is the story of the Chet HaMaraglim and its immediate aftermath. After that, in what I have is section two, we have the institution of Menachos and Nesachim, meal offerings that accompany Karbonos and wine libations that accompany Karbonos. Now the obvious question is what this has to do with anything, especially in this Parsha. Where would we have placed this, right? You can't just ask, why is it here? You have to ask where it would be better to have placed it. And the answer would be anywhere in Sefer Vayikra, which talks about the Karbanos. Right? We have plenty of, of Menachos discussed, for example, in Parsha's Vayikra, Parsha's Tzav. So it would, be, it would have been definitely appropriate there. Nesachim being the partner topic, why not put the Nesachim there as well? So why, in fact, are these here? But okay, we have different accompaniments to Karbonos right here in our Parsha, right after the Meraglim. It just seems like almost like a non-sequitur that the Chumash starts talking about Menachos and Nesachim. And then right after that, the Chumash starts talking about the mitzvah of Chala, the Reishas Arisaseichem, the first of your dough, which is supposed to go to the Kohen when you separate. Um, so whenever you have a certain amount of dough, you have to separate um, a certain amount um, maybe a non-specified amount, not really for now, but you, you, you give a certain amount as truma to the Kohen. So what's that doing here? Okay, that's section three. Section four, we have a, a larger section, which I refer to as the Si'irei Avodah series, which is the goats that are offered as an atonement in response to the sin of Avodah Zarah. Now, Avodah Zarah is not specified in the Chumash, but all the Mepharshim virtually, even the Pashtunim, like the Ibn Ezra, the Rashbam, they all understand the, the chait in question when the Chumash talks about doing a particular kind of Avera, so, or, you know, and it's really there, it's unspecified, they all say it's a reference to Avodah Zarah. Um, how they get there, it's not, you know, not, not, not what we're going to address right now, but in this series we have the unintentional public violation of Avodah Zarah, so we have a national 
chet of avodazara. It gives an, um, uh, um, there's a certain case of an unintentional individual violation, right? A person who does it by himself. And then we have the case of an intentional individual violation of Vodazara. He doesn't bring a carbon, he just gets killed. All right, so that's section four, the Seire Vodazara series. Another set of carbonos that could have fit right into Vayikra. So we have a bunch of halachos that could have easily been in somewhere in Vayikra. So what are they doing here? Then five, we have the story of the Makoshesh Eitzim, the wood gatherer, the Shabbos wood gatherer. Right, we have an individual, unclear what his intentions were. Chazal have different opinions about who this individual was, but he gathered wood on Shabbos, and he violated Shabbos. It was, he was Mechalel Shabbos, and he was killed. First, he was put in, into a, a ward, into a prison. They didn't know what to do with him until Moshe Rabbeinu received a word from Hashem, very similar to the story at the end of Parshas Emor um, with the Mikalel. And it's actually interesting, because when it talks about a person sinning biad ramot, in the case of the Seirei Vodazara series, at the very end, we have an intentional individual violation. It says that he's megadef biad ramah. Megadef is a lotion for cursing. It's almost winking at the uh, story of the Mikhalel, which is very similar to the story here of the wood gatherer. So, um, and there, there's plenty to be said about the connections between the wood gatherer and the Makalel, the Makoshesh and the Makalel. Um, I've, I've written on the topic, and by Jesse Horn from Hakotel, in his book Double Take, he has material on it. Excellent stuff if you want to take a look. Um, but what we have to figure out is what this Shabbos violation story is doing here. Right, um, maybe uh, you know a topic also for another time. Who this individual was? It's actually a machlokas in the uh, in the Gemara, um, but also in terms of where this this story belongs. Sarashi and Ibn Ezra. You really have to ask this question for them also, because the you know the in terms of why the story is here, they say the story did not even happen now, but it actually happened in conjunction with the story in Parshas Emor with the Makala, that they belong together. The Ramban assumes that this is chronologically right where it belongs, but even chronology by itself in a Parsha with many different facets would not be able to fully explain why the story is here in our complex Parsha. Um, but in terms of who this individual was, um, among the opinions in Chazal, so the one quoted by Targum Yonason and Tosfos and Bava Basra um, is the one that's featured in Shabbos. The same uh, same discussion um, that's trying to figure out what, in fact, was the the malacha that he violated. We have the opinion of Rabbi Akiva that says that it was actually Tzalafchad, who and he he died um, in this story. And he actually sinned with, with righteous intentions. He was trying to reawaken Shabbos awareness. So an Aver Lashma, if you will, um, the Hashkafa of which we are not going to talk about now. However, the other opinion in the Gemara is um, the opinion of Rabbi Huda ben Beseira, who assumes that Salafchad did not die in the story of the Makoshish Eitzim, but, uh, but he died in the story of the Ma'apilim from earlier in the Parsha. So good trivia question. What was the Parsha that Salafchad died in? It's Parsha Shlach, but it's one of two different stories in, Sh- in Shlach, depending on if you're like Rabbi Akiva or if you're like Rabbi Yehuda ben Beseira. Um, but either way, um, according to Rabbi Yehuda ben Beseira, then the Makoshesh would have just been some random sinner. And according to the Ibn Ezra, it seems to me that this also was an instance of, of, of an intentional sinner. That's how the Ibn Ezra explains the connection to, to the context 
is that we just had a, a situation in the Chumash which talks about an individual sinning biyad Ramah. So apparently this Makoshesh, according to the Ibn Ezra, was someone who was sinning biyad Ramah, thus explaining the connection. Now we have some individual connections. What we do not quite have yet is an explanation of why all of this is here. So all of this meaning, well, besides for the Parsha which closes out Shlach, or the Parsha of Tzitzis, so that we have to explain. We found, the, we found one word connection. There's actually more, which we didn't talk about yet. Maybe we'll get to it. But we have the Parsha of Tzitzis that we have to figure out. And so that's the spies and the strings and, of course, everything in between. Namely, the Menachos, the Nesachim, Chala, the Seire of Odazara series, or the Seir Lavodazara series, and the story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim. What are all these stories doing here in Parsha Shlach? So that is where we drop the anchor. We have our work cut out for us. So let's go. Starting with the Menachos and the Nesachim. So you find a school of Mepharshim. Rashi says something to this effect. The Ramban and the Ibn Ezra also, they, they bring some suggestions to such an effect. But that is that the Menachos and the Nesachim are a form of consolation to the Bnei Yisrael, who had just been told that they will not enter Eretz Yisrael. But one day their descendants would. And when they will eventually enter the land, they will bring Karbanos and they will um, get to bring the Menachos and the Nesachim that accompany them. Now, that is similar to what we find by, um, by when it comes to Chala. Uh, really, Chala will be connected to this conversation when we see the Svarno, who does not see the Menachos and the Nesachim as a consolation, but as a penalty. These are things that you now owe. He says the same thing when it comes to Chala, that really, the blessing for prosperity in the land, in Eretz Yisrael, um, that, that, that blessing... Um, which is now necessitated, um, it can only be achieved through chala, through um, fulfilling the mitzvos. Um, so when you enter the land, you're, when you eat the food of the land, so yes, the menachos, the nesachim, and the dough, you'll get a chance, but you will have to um, pay a price for it. In a shear, um, a one-minute shear on Torah anytime from Rav Daniel Gladstein, I heard him quote Rav Chaim Kanievsky Shlita, who explained the connection of the Nesachim, at least, is that the Nesachim is, uh, it comes from Anavim, it comes from grapes, which we are told in the story of the Miraglim that it was the time of the grape harvest, you may be Kurei Anavim, and the grapes that were actually used um, in slandering Eretz Yisrael. And so we see the same grapes that were used in slandering Eretz Yisrael are now going to be, are now going to be coming to be used in the libations when we bring Carbonos, um, you know, once upon a time in the future, um, I guess, or one day in the future, um, you know, then we'll be using those things which we used to slander the land, we'll be using them to now praise Hashem in the offering of Carbonos. Now, perhaps... Um, an additional layer of meaning we could explain when it comes to at least the Menachos and the Nesachim. This is my own idea, so take it with a grain of salt or take it with a grain of flour um, and a droplet of, of wine. But the suggestion being, which the Chumash highlights here um, as well as in other places, um, when it, with, with Karbanos in general, that they are Reach Nichoach La Hashem. That what does a Reach Nichoach La Hashem symbolize, even if it doesn't necessarily have a smell that is pleasing to the human nose, but the idea of a Reach Nichoach La Hashem is that you did Hashem's Ratzon, you followed through, and that's what's pleasing to Hashem. That's what the Karban in general represents. Now, 
there are times and places where we might think that it's appropriate to go above and beyond, to do something more than what we were told, to volunteer something. And there are wrong ways to do such a thing. Right, so in Chet HaMaraglim, we find um, a circumstance where individuals who may have started off righteous, they went above and beyond, and in their case, it was beyond the pale. They went above and beyond to, to volunteer information and advice and suggestions that they were not instructed to do. If they were told to look at the land, to scatter it out, and to just say what they saw is one thing, but to go and start giving a report, to go and start editorializing what they had seen, they went above and beyond in a way which they were not instructed. Now, sometimes going above and beyond is within us on Hashem, and sometimes it's a high and holy ideal. But the Menachos and the Nesachim, these are a form of going above and beyond, an accompaniment to the baseline Carbonos, which Hashem describes as a reach nichoach Hashem. This is something that you can do. You want to do something extra. You want to do something that's nice. So, you know, there are a lot of things that can be an embellishment. And some embellishments are kosher and some are not. And you have to be a chacham to know the difference between the two. And in this particular case, Menachas and Nesachim are an example of a good concept of going above and beyond. Um, take that or leave it, but that's just another suggestion. And now let's talk a little bit about the Seir La'avodazara series. Again, another series that could have easily found a place in Sefer Vayikra, but yet it's here. So what exactly is the Seir La'avodazara series here? Now, I'll mention once again that the connection between this goat offering and the atonement for Avodazara is not explicit in the Chumash. It just talks about some kind of shogeg and some kind of mezid averos going against that which Moshe commanded, against the Ratzon Hashem. It's vague enough, which leads me to the conclusion that even if it is talking about Avodazara, there are perhaps some larger themes that the Torah means to highlight here, and maybe so in connection to the story of our Parsha. Now, I will say that this particular part of the Parsha is a little bit more difficult to connect, um, especially considering the fact that in most of the Mepharshim I did not find a connection. However, Rav Hirsch, Rav Shemshanafal Hirsch, talks a little bit about it, and he draws the connection between the stories by highlighting how the story of the Miraglim has a combination of elements that we find in the Seir Lavodazara series. And those are as follows. The way he refers to them are, number one, the element of erroneous national apostasy, and the second one is personal, conscious, or intentional defection from God. So the first one, erroneous national apostasy, which are just um, a fancy way, or is just a fancy way of saying that you have something that's unintentional, but it is public, it's communal, and it's some kind of, of, a, of an affront to Hashem, almost to, to the level of, of, of heresy, where you don't believe in Hashem. There was a national hysteria, an, 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 an avera, an, an, an error that occurred at the hands of Kleisfeld as a whole, as a collective, as a nation, and there's, there's no way around that. And even if it wasn't intentional, right, we can make the argument that they didn't intend to do the wrong thing, but sometimes that's what happens. You have a national mistake, 
And who do you blame when it's all hysteria, right? You don't just have a group of people deciding, hey, let's do an Avera. It's usually, you know, when you have a, a unless it's like Manish, a mob, right, or a riot. A communal crime is one that everyone just committed out of panic. And so here there was a case of a national erroneous uh, apostasy, which is the symbol of the se'ir that's brought for a communal uh, serving of a vodazara. On the other hand, we have a case that is personal, it's conscious, and it's, it's, um, it's intentional. And this kind of defection from God is another element that played an important role in the national tragedy of the Chet HaMaraglim. And that is because national, even though it, it is always possible for a, a nation or a community to make a mistake, certainly in this case, it was largely the fault of a few worthy individuals who did an intentional Avera. Whatever their intentions were in terms of the direction they were going and if they thought there was a greater good, the point is, Rashi tells us they, that they left Shalolishma, that they were that they left intending to do the wrong thing. And sometimes, even for a national Avera, it takes a few individuals um, who, ha- who are conscious and doing the wrong thing and leading a community in the wrong direction. So we find both of those elements in the Seir Lavodazara series, and we find them both in the Chet HaMaragum. Now let's move on to the Mekoshe Sheitzim. So what exactly is the reason for the inclusion of the story of the Shabbos wood gatherer? Right, that's the question. So we spoke a little bit already about whom this individual may be, or who he may be probably is grammatically the correct way to say it. And we gave some possible connections between the Mekoshesh Eitzim and the previous passage about the Seir Lavodazara, but large picture, really, what's this doing here? All right, what does, uh, what does the Shabbos desecration have to do with it? You know, this could have easily been placed in Parsha Amor, right next to the Mekalel, right? According to Rashi and the Ezra, that would have worked out really well. The Ramban says this story belongs right here, and if, um, if it does... Right, he means that chronologically, and if that's true, that can partially help. But again, in a parsha that has narrative at the beginning, a lot of law topics in the middle, and this at the end, next to tzitzis, so it really makes you wonder. You know, how do you decide when to poke in with a narrative like this? And again, the larger question of, you know, what the theme, like, like what, what, what exactly is happening here? So, if you know, if we assume that this was tzalaf chad and maybe for some reason he felt there was Shabbos laxity at this time. Okay, so you know, if you go with Rabbi Akiva, you have to uh, draw some connection in that vein. I wanted to um, follow the Ramban's lead, who mentions that the Pasuk mentions that all this took place in the Midbar, that this Mekoshesh Eitzim, he went out gathering in the Midbar. Now, we know they were in the Midbar, don't we? It says the Ramban, here it's talking specifically after they, it was decreed against them that they would be wandering. Now, for a second, we could assume at least an approach that does not necessarily conform with Rabbi Akiva's opinion. We could go with um, his opponent, um, which we said was Rabbi Ben Becerra, or the you know the Ibn Ezra, who can fit with that as well. That this is an instance of an intentional sin. What would be the purpose of the Chumash telling us about Smukosha Shaitsan? That he went out, he started gathering wood at this point, right? And the the, the point apparently being that he was. He was 
desecrating Shabbos, and apparently intentionally, right? For it to, to get a death penalty, you've got to be doing this intentionally. And that is, in fact, what happens in this story. So if this was just an intentional sinner, then it would seem to mean that this was someone who was just giving up on life. Someone who, for whatever reason, he's just going out, going about gathering wood. What's his purpose? It's not even clear. The Chumash doesn't tell us why he goes out to gather wood. So your guess is as good as mine. I do have an essay where I speak at length about the wood gatherer, and I give a suggestion, um, which I'm, I'm not going to present in full right now, but if you want, you could always reach out to me at the database at gmail.com to continue the conversation. But what I do want to present is the possibility that this wood gatherer was someone who, upon hearing the, the decree that his entire generation would die before getting to enter the land, he just gave up. And apparently, he threw Shabbos out, he threw everything out. Now, the reason why this is significant is this really is a window into teaching us how we might be able to respond to a similar situation, chas v'shalom, right? It's not necessarily that it, there was anything decreed against us that we wouldn't get to see Hashem's promised land, but it is very possible. You know, we all know people who didn't get that chance to see the redemption, namely everyone who has died up until this point, Lo'aleinu. Um, some people having been to Eretz Yisrael, some people not ha- ever having been there. But the point is, none of them got to see the redemption unfold. Right? So what do you do when you know someone like that? Or what do you do when Chas Hashem, the, the um, potential arises that that might, ha- that, that might happen to you? So what do you do? I want to answer this question in light of something that we say every Shabbos. This has come up in Baal Workshop, and it's going to come up again here. Every, um, every Kabbalah Shabbos, at the end of the first paragraph of L'chun Ranana, so we say, Arbaim Shana Kut Bedar, or if you like the Karlbach, so Arbaim Shana Kut Bedar, in which we are being reminded of the fact that Hashem decreed against us 40 years of wandering in the Midbar, right? Um, I said that these people are strayers, they're wanderers away from the Torah. They do not know my way. And therefore, um, that is why I, you know, I declared against them that, they, uh, that uh, I swear if you'll ever get to see the place of my contentment. That is what we say at every... Uh, Leil Shabbos, every Arab Shabbos. Um, so the question is, why do we sing that? And what's the connection also? Why, why are we saying that on every you know, entry into Shabbos? Right? And it's kind of like, well, what's the relevance? And the other question again is, why would you, well, why would you say some pretty nusuch to that? That's not a very encouraging sounding thing to talk, to talk about how we sinned with the Chetam or Aglim. But we say this every single Arab Shabbos, a Kabbalah Shabbos. Now, the answer, I think, has to do with what the Makoshish Eitzim missed the boat on and what we should not miss the boat on, and it has something to do with Shabbos. And that is the idea that even if you know with full fact that you will not see the redemption, apparently that is not a reason to give up on life. And apparently on Shabbos, we do not have to mourn the fact that we don't have the Geula, that we don't have Hashem's promised land, that we don't have the Beis HaMikdash, specifically because Shabbos represents a Beis HaMikdash complete in time. It represents Me'in Olam Haba. It represents a semblance of the next world. It has already the taste of Geula. 
And that means that on Shabbos, there's a sense of completion. You may think that you'll never get to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but apparently we get actually a semblance, a ray of that light every single Shabbos. And even if you know you're not going to get to see the full thing, the point is that there's still a Ratzon Hashem at every moment. And we don't serve Hashem just so that we can get, you know, a Beis HaMikdash. Because the truth is, we spoke about this in a, in, a, in a previous podcast a bunch of months ago, that, you know, the whole reason for wanting the Mashiach, the, the Melech Mashiach is someone who's going to help us serve Hashem better. Right? It's not, it's not we serve us Hashem so that He could bring the Gula, we could have the Beis HaMikdash. But we, you know, we do that anyway, and having the Gula and the Beis HaMikdash would help us serve Him even better. So to give up on life because we don't get to see the full manifestation of the redemption as we would like to is absolutely not a reason to give up. But on the contrary, it should be a reason to strengthen ourselves to do the best that we can even while we're still here. And Shabbos is the window into getting to see that full gula. And it's what connects us constantly to that gula, whether we get to experience it in real time or not. But as Rosh Hashem, we should get to experience it in real time. But the Makoshesh... He, he missed the boat on that, um, assuming that it wasn't Salafchar. And that's something that we should not miss out on ourselves. Um, we should, you know, rededicate ourselves. And now finally we come to the end with Tzitzis. So we spoke about how this is the clear cap to Parsha Shlach. Right? So you shouldn't spy out after your eyes. Don't spy out after the maraglim of your body, your eyes and your heart. But what does tzitzis have to do with the maraglim? Is it just about using your eyes and looking at things that are inappropriate, looking at things, you know, Eretz Yisrael is not inappropriate. You're supposed to look at Eretz Yisrael. In fact, that's what they were told to do. And the problem is that they just, you know, they went the wrong way with it. So what's tzitzis supposed to tell us? All right, tzitzis, you know, the theme, um, you might think, well, you might think that the theme of of the Maraglim, what did they what did they do wrong? You might say they lacked the Muna and Batachon. You might say, you know, they so they, they lacked faith in Hashem. Tzitzis does not really seem to be about that. Tzitzis seems to be about dedication to Hashem, right? That it was Uri'isemoso, you should see them, Uzchartemiskomitsuasaivasisemosam. You should see them, remember my mitzvos and do them. Right? So Tzitzis seems to be like a reminder, it's a visual reminder to do the mitzvos. Right? There, there's a lot of different connections about what that means. So what does that have to do with the Maraglim? I thought that, you know, like, is the Tzitzis telling us to have faith? I mean, maybe. But again, the Tzitzis is more about remembering to do the mitzvos. It's, the Tzitzis is about zechira and Asiya of the mitzvos, whereas the Maraglim seems to be about Amuna and Bitachon. It doesn't really seem to be about devotion and dedication. You can make the argument that maybe it is, and that's where the Maraglim went wrong. But, um, you know, what, what in fact is the connection? Now, you might say that the connection is, well, a person that has a moon and bitachon and Hashem, he's the person that's going to remember and do the mitzvahs properly, right? So faith strengthens observance. But I want to make the opposite argument about the relationship between faith and observance. And it's, it's because, again, on its own it might be a stretch, but I think, if you bear with me, faith and observance do not just have the causal relationship or the correlation maybe, of, oh, if you, you, know, the, you know, the more faith you have, the more you'll be able to observe. But I think just the opposite, that perhaps sometimes the more you observe, the more you perform the mitzvahs with maybe the help of cognitive dissonance or, or, or maybe just something else entirely, the more faithful you are, then the more faith you end up having. And I, I say this 
with a look at another textual parallel between the Miraglim and Tzitzis. And that is the theme of Znus. The theme of Znus. Where is there Znus in the story of the Miraglim? Where is there Znus in Tzitzis? Znus refers to immorality or licentiousness. Um, faithlessness, infidelity. Right? Um, znus is the word for harlotry. Now in Tzitzis it says, That you're going to stray after it. Now, where do you find this in the Chetam Aragon? You will find it in a very strange place, and so strange is it that Unkelos and Rashi um, reinterpret the word from its Pashib Shah, and they say that it means um, their sense of obligation. But Hashem tells um, the Bnei Israel, really, he tells Moshe Rabbeinu, or really, to tell the Bnei Israel, in Paraki Adalad, Pasuk Lama Gimel, Uvnechem Yihi Roem Ba Midbar Arbem Shana, your children will be wandering in the Midbar. Rome in the Midbar for 40 years, Vinasu es znu seichem. And the art scroll translation based on Rashi and Unklus says, and bear your guilt. Your children will bear your guilt. But Midbar until your bodies collapse in the, you know, or are seas in the wilderness. But es znu seichem, there's an us. So again, they, they translate here as your guilt, your sense of obligation. But why would you use the word znus? That's a funny word to use. But apparently, the Chumash is trying to tell us something. The immorality, the licentiousness, the infidelity. I thought this was a question about faith. The, the, the Moroccan lacked faith. Uh, what, what, what's their guilt of the znus that they did, the harlotry that they did? And the answer has to do with actually an English word that has two meanings, at least two possible meanings. The word faithful or faithlessness. Right? Faithful usually means someone who you can trust. Someone who you can trust is faithful. But someone who is full of faith, that's someone who trusts in others or trusts in you. And the question is, what causes what? Right? You could say that you know, I mean, he, he's faithful to me because he has faith in me. He's, since, since I'm faithful, he's able to have faith in me. Right? That's, that's how it usually is. But what if it's the other way around? What if because he's faithful to me, therefore he's actually able to trust in me? Right? Let's, let's use the, the negative. Faithlessness. When someone is faithless, does that mean that they lack faith? Or does that mean that I can't trust in them? That they are not faithful, someone who is faithless. So when it comes to infidelity, let's think about it that way. Do we assume that someone who engages in infidelity, someone who violates, breaches the relationship with a loved one, do you think that that is, uh, that because they didn't have faith in the other, therefore, right, because they didn't trust the other, therefore, they act without faith? Or, or in, in other words, they were faithless, that they committed an act of infidelity? Sometimes you commit an act of infidelity, and because of that, you therefore lack trust in others. You don't have hope in mankind because you don't have hope in yourself. Or you don't have hope in your loved one because you don't have that faith in yourself. And you don't have that faith in yourself because you lacked that faithfulness, because you were committing an act of infidelity. The causal relationship between observance and faith is not necessarily that the more I have faith, the more I observe. But the more I observe, the more I do the mitzvos, the more I strengthen my faith in others. The more dedicated I am, the more I believe that others will be dedicated to me. And when it comes to 
the observance of mitzvahs that we find in tzitzis and the faith that we find in the story of the Miraglim, the idea, very simply, is that individuals who are dedicated, those are individuals who will be able to have faith. You follow the mitzvahs and you don't ask questions. The Nasevanishma approach and mentality. That, that's what it's all about. We know back in Baha'u'llah, the nuns were upside down. And some say that's because they completely overturned the Nasev and Ishma. That came to its climax here in Shalach with the Chetan Meraglim. And Sitzis is telling us, you want to know what the problem with the Meraglim was? You want to know? You'll think, oh, it's that they lacked faith, right? Well, yes, but something more than that. It was because they lacked dedication and devotion. Because they lacked dedication and devotion, because they were lax in performing the mitzvahs, little by little, they worked backwards and said, well, you know what, maybe I don't actually have faith in the God anyway. Maybe I don't have faith that, that, um, you know, that, that Hashem's there with us, that things are going to work out. And that's, how often is that really what it is? Right? People will tell you, oh yeah, I don't believe in God, therefore I don't do the mitzvahs. How often is that the order versus the reverse? That, you know, I'm anyway not doing the mitzvahs, I'm anyway not carrying my weight in Avodos Hashem, and Maybe I could rationalize God away. I don't have faith in him. And therefore, you know, I, I don't have to do the mitzvahs. How convenient. But that's the relationship between faithlessness and faithlessness, between observance and trust and, and, and faith in Hashem. And that takes us through this incredible parsha, parshas shalach. And now hopefully you have plenty to work with for this Shabbos. And next week, we're going to talk about an incredible, another story, um, a tragedy, of course, in its own right. But this one is, you know, a subject of its own, its own questions in terms of the ordering, the chronology. When did this happen? Did it happen right where it's placed? And we're going to have a whole Parsha about the individual named Korach and the aftermath of that. And we'll see exactly the panoramic view, how that ties into everything, because it does that everything that we see in this week's Parsha. But stay tuned. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy Parsha Shlach for the incredible enlightening Torah that's there. Of course, we'll strengthen ourselves to, to rectify what went wrong then. And of course, have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos. Thank you for joining us here at the database.